Well, we, uh, we're really looking forward to celebrating Easter next week because last year we didn't get to worship in person. And so it's going to be a two years since we celebrated Easter together. And so we're expecting y'all have a good crowd today. This is the most we've had uh, since the pandemic. We're expecting probably a pretty full 830 service. So we're excited about that. We're excited about today also. Today is a special day because we're doing kind of what we call a soft launch. Or what we're really starting to do today is starting to look forward to phase two, and we're starting to publicize that that day's coming. If you're fairly new to our church, we've moved out here a little over three years ago. This is phase one. There's at least one more phase coming. There may be more than that, but I'm only worried about the next phase. Uh, If you remember, for those of you that have been around a while, phase one was called Reach. Phase two is called impact. If you go out the doors and over by the cafe, you see some monitors hanging, they're going to start the promotion of impact. You may receive a phone call sometime in the next few weeks or months asking you to participate to some capacity in the leadership or the working structure of impact. Don't worry about it. We're not asking you for money at that point, okay? That comes later, not at that point. <laughs> Just pray about it and help be a part of that because impact's going to be going on for the next several years. So we're excited about that. We're in a series that began the 1st of March called The Cross of Christ. It goes through end of April. It's really our our Easter series. And when I began this series, I began uh, with a statement that was, you know, several sentences long, and then the second week I added another statement. And and so what I've kind of done is just in time, you know, we're always constantly uh, moving things to simplicity. And so I've taken those two longer statements, and I've moved them to one simpler statement that you'll be seeing throughout the rest of the series, and it's this. It kind of guides the series. It guides the whole thought process behind the cross of Christ. For the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross, and you cannot separate the cross from Christianity. When you're a follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. And I shared originally that everything that Jesus did was in preparation for the cross. Everything that happened with the early followers after the cross was a result of that. Everything comes back to the cross. And coming back to the cross, we need to understand then you can't separate the cross from our Christian faith, from the Christian movement. People try to. They try to take the cross out of Christianity. But if you take the cross out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. What we've seen over the last three weeks is we've seen the centrality of the cross. That is, it is the central part of our salvation. We have seen the uh, reason for the cross, that we have been declared right by God, justified. Last week, we saw the heart of the cross, that is God's love for us. And today, we're going to be at the achievement of the cross found in Romans 5, 19 and 11. And before I get and talk about those verses dealing with the achievement of the cross, this is what I want you to see from the message today. At the cross, something was accomplished. It was achieved with a success and finality. What was it? At the cross, something was accomplished. That achievement was conducted with absolute finality and absolute success. The question is, what was achieved Last year, in the Easter series was entitled Seven. We did, dealt with the seven statements of Christ. In the middle of the Easter series, we had to quit worshiping in public and did it online for a few weeks until we came back in public. And uh, in, in, in that series, as I dealt with the seven statements of Jesus on the cross, the Sunday that corresponds to this Sunday, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the sixth saying of Jesus from John 19.30 was, It is finished. It is finished. Something was finished on the cross. This was the statement he made before he declared in Luke, you know, Lord, I give my hands into your spirit, into you, Father, take my spirit. He, he said, it's done. In the Greek, it's just one word. It means to come to completion. Something was finalized. Something was successfully accomplished. What was it that was done at the cross? That's what really matters. To achieve something in the sense that we're looking at it means to accomplish something with absolutely the way it was supposed to be done. 
and there's nothing left to add to it to make it more accomplished, to make the achievement any greater. You can't make the achievement any greater. Last week, when we came to Romans, we were in verse chapter 5 again, verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. We had said in verse 6, and we were looking at that, that when we were helpless uh, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then it, it said that no one will ever die for a righteous person, but maybe for a good person. And then verse 8, which is the key, got to what is really we call the heart of the cross, for God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows us his love. We were still sinning, Christ died for us. Verse 9 then, coming right off verse 8, kind of demonstrates that love a little bit, but also throws something kind of into the, the cross equation that causes some people some problems. Verse 9 says this, much more than, or as NIV says, since then, we have now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from, and this is the hard part for some people, the wrath of God through him. The word justified and the word saved are used here. Those have been two key words that we have seen in our series for so far. They are part of the, what we call the salvation family of words. There are, there are certain thoughts and doctrines that have multiple words, usually one kind of general word. For instance, sin, the general overriding word is the word sin, but there are other terms that go along with it. We saw a couple of weeks ago uh, transgression, the word iniquity, uh, evil, wickedness are all part of that sin family of words concept. Salvation is an overarching theme of deliverance. There are other words that are part of that family that help clarify it, justified, being a one, redeemed, adopted. Those are salvation family words. To be saved is really to be rescued. The very first message we saw with the centrality of the cross coming from uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, told us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, the centrality of the cross, it is God's power. The word saved is written as is justified in a passive way. It means it's not something we bring upon ourselves. It's something that happens to us. But the word saved here, and oftentimes when Paul uses it, is also written to speak to the future. We will be saved. It's a future event. It doesn't mean we're not saved now. But Paul looks at salvation, our relationship God, with the standpoint of eternity. We simply are living part of eternity now in the physical realm. There will come a time when we go beyond the physical realm at death. And we realize that there's an eternal realm. Paul wants us to know we are saved because of the work of Christ for all eternity. It's something that happens now, but on into the future. We are justified, Paul says. And, and, and he writes that, he's speaking of a one-time event. Since justification is part of salvation and not the overarching term, he wants us to know that the future, our salvation, is possible because of something that's already occurred. We have been justified. We have been declared right. When I preached about the reason for the cross in Romans 4, 25, Paul says that he, that is Jesus, was given over because of our transgressions. That's the word from the sin family, but he was raised back to life for our justification so that we may be declared right in the eyes of God. Having been justified, in fact, 5, 1, chapter 5, verse 1 says we are justified by faith. Having faith been justified, we have peace with God. Paul says that now having been justified by his blood, by his death, more than that, we shall be saved, but we're saved from something. And he says we're saved from 
the wrath of God, and we struggle with that word wrath. I know in 2021 America and our culture, we don't like to think of God having wrath. In fact, some people refuse to put their faith in God or believe in God or acknowledge God because of that term wrath. And the reason is we don't understand the term wrath. We think of our wrath as humans. Our wrath, our anger can be a burning, intense thing. I, I, I have a tendency when I get angry to get angry quickly. A lot of things won't bother me. You think would bother me and something small happens and all of a sudden it's just like boom. And man, it's just, people tell me my face turns red. My staff will tell me they know when I'm angry because my face turns red. And things, veins start popping. And things start happening, you know. And, uh, and, 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 and that is, that's our, and wrath is, for us, wrath is like, you know, the wrath of Khan or the wrath of the Titans or the wrath. It's the anger. It's the bloodlust. It is, it is a cruelty. It is a vengeful thing. That's the way we look at wrath. But wrath, that's not how... The scripture looks at wrath. That's not what God's wrath is at all. You see, the wrath of God is part of the love of God. In, in, in chapter 5, verse 6, it says God shows his love. And then verse 9 says, and he shows his love by saving us from his wrath. You see, somehow love and wrath are connected as part of the holiness of God. God is holy, and being holy means that he is perfect, and he is separate from his creation. Nothing unholy can come into the presence of God. But when that which is sinful occurs... Wrath of God occurs. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul tells us in verse 16, he, he tells us, and, and similar to verse 18 of, of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse Corinthians, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. In, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, it says that the message of the cross, that's the same thing as the gospel, same things. In, in Corinthians, it says the message of the cross is for those who believe or being saved, the power of God. Paul says in Romans that, that the gospel is the power of salvation, the power of God for saved. We're saved by that gospel. In verse 17, he says, if, that is the gospel, reveals that we are the righteousness, it reveals the righteousness of God, which is from faith to faith, first to last, faith. So we see the just to live by faith. So you have these great themes of salvation, of faith. And then in Romans 1.18, Paul says this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God says, by Paul says, there's the wrath of God. It's revealed, it's made known against the ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, it's against the rebellion that occurs when we disobey God, we rebel against God. It is natural. It is normative. We should expect there to be consequences for our rebellion. The consequences of that rebellion then is wrath. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in the second chapter, God says to Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden except one. Any tree you want except one. Now, remember I shared with you last week briefly that created in the image of God means we have freedom. We have freedom to be free moral beings, but to be a free moral being must mean that you have the ability to make a moral decision. You have to be able to choose between a right and a wrong. And so God in creating us gave us that choice. He said, you can eat of any tree you want, Adam, just don't eat of the one. It's not like he said, Adam, there's a thousand trees. You can only eat of one. He said, Adam, here's a thousand trees. You can eat of all but one. Then he laid out the consequences of rebellion. You will die. Not just physically, which might occur over time, not right away, but spiritually, there'll be a death. There'll be a separation, which is what death really is. And in chapter 3, the serpent comes along, and, and he says, you will not die. There's a deception. He says, God's a liar. You will not die. You will be like God. And that's the temptation, to be like God. And Adam decided, I want to be God. I want to be God. 
and he sinned. God said to Adam, because you sinned, there's a consequence. That is what the wrath of God is. It is helping us realize the consequence of sin. It is the payment of sin. It's not, it's not a bloodlust. It's not vengeful anger that sees which we think of, which is what the wrath of God is depicted. Sometimes even pastors depict it that way. The word for wrath that is used is the word orge, which means a very slow simmering to a point of no more. Put it this way. If you were to take a pot of, of tap water, I mean how big or small the pot is, and you were to turn on the fire, and then we have a gas range, a little fire comes up, and, you know, and, and if, you know, if you know the fire comes up because it burns your hand when you put it there when you're not careful, you know. Eventually, if you put that pot of water on that fire, at some point, it begins to boil. That may take a long time. I mean, it take, seems like it takes forever. And if, you know, you're trying to cook pasta and you're in a hurry, I don't care how high the fire is, it takes hours for that thing to come on. But the slowness, the simmering, the taking of time before it finally boils, that is the picture of wrath. It is the slowness till God says enough is enough. And here's the thing about God's wrath. God's wrath is his way of honoring our freedom to reject him. We choose in this life to reject God. What we're doing is saying, God, I don't want to have any part of you. In my life, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to worship you. I don't want to do things your way. I want to be God. And God says, okay. And that saying okay has to carry on to eternity. Just like the concept of salvation has an eternal aspect, wrath has an eternal aspect. It's God for all eternity saying, you get to have your freedom just the way you wanted it. You're separated from me from all eternity. But that separation isn't like, well, everything's going to be okay. The separation is a payment. It's a price. We understand that in our life. We have laws. One of the laws is against murder. If someone kills another person, we expect justice, do we not? We expect them to pay for that. If, if someone could take another human life, and there was never be a payment. There was never be any retribution. That would not be just. We understand that. But not only does wrath acknowledge the decision of the unbeliever, it also honors the decision of the believer, the person who puts their faith in Christ. If I put my faith in Christ, and you don't put your faith in Christ, and we get the same eternal outcome, that is not just. Even more so, in the biblical times, when Christians were put to death, and even today, when Christians are put to death, if I live my life in faith, and then I am persecuted, and, and my money's taken away, my home is taken away, my family is taken away, eventually my life is taken away, and this person caused that, if this person never repents of their sin, and then when we both face God, if we receive the same eternal reward, if we all get to spend eternity with God forever in his love and his mercy, how is that just? Why should I have ever followed Christ? It's not just at all in the book of Revelation. And in uh, July 30th on a Friday night, I'm going to teach Revelation for like four hours. I'm going to get it all in four hours. Don't worry about it. It can be done. I'll show you. It can be. It's not near as complicated as you make it out to be. John wrote a book to seven churches who were facing the worst piece of persecution imaginable from the hands of Domitian. They were. And, and no emperor had persecuted Christians like Domitian to that point, and probably none ever really fully would. And at the end of the first century, he was killing these Christians, especially in Asia Minor. And so John wrote a letter to seven churches, expecting those churches to take it to the other churches, dealing with the persecution. And in dealing with that persecution, he told them, 
that the wrath of God was coming. And what he meant by that is this. God was going to settle all accounts. Domitian would be destroyed. Rome would be destroyed. They would be vindicated for all eternity in heaven, and the church would prevail. A few years after he wrote that, Domitian was killed by some of his own guys. After he was dead, the Roman Senate declared that everything about Domitian was to be avoided out. He was basically declared a non-person. All statues, everything was removed because of his cruelty to everyone. Today, if you go to Rome, there are no statues. There's no recognition. There's no worship of Domitian. There are churches in the name of Christ everywhere. God settles all things straight. But, right, but some people struggle with wrath. And the reason they struggle with wrath is because they might be facing that wrath. Because they want, to live in the, they want to live in a rejection against God. They want to live in rebellion against God. And at the same time, not have to face wrath. In fact, here's the thing. If you don't believe or don't like the idea of God having wrath, because if God having wrath is legitimate, you're in trouble. People don't like the idea of God having wrath. Because if God having wrath is real, they know they are in trouble. We are saved from the wrath of God. But not only that, verse 10 tells us this. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, had it been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He says, you were in the wrath of God because you were his enemy. An enemy is someone who was in rebellion, who was in, the act, who was in a really kind of a violent relationship with someone else. There's antagonism. There's animosity. Um, in this analogy, no one in this, in this analogy represents God. I want to say this right off the bat. In the illustration I'm about to give you, nobody represents God. When I was in high school, I was fortunate enough to go to Churchill High School in San Antonio in the 70s. Um, and, and in that high school, we were one of the state powers. My sophomore year, we won the state championship. We were a great team. So going into my junior year, one of the guys who was going to be a senior realized his name was Eddie. He wasn't going to start. So he left our high school to go to another high school. He managed to work it out to go there. One of our rivals. Now, you can imagine how we all felt. We felt betrayed. We felt anger. It came time to play MacArthur High School that year. And since Eddie was a linebacker and I was on defense and I was a guard on offense, it just worked out that he lined it up ahead of me all night long. And I made up my mission to unleash all the anger, the frustration, the vindictiveness that I knew how. I hit him every chance I could. I hit him late. I hit him low. I hit him on the ground every chance I could. Why? Because he was my enemy. He was all of our enemy. I wasn't the only one. We all went after him all night long to make him pay. We won the game. We made him pay. That's what enemies do. Now, there again, no one in this story represents God. <laughs> one of us was close. But <laughs> That's what it means to be an enemy. While we were enemies, notice what it said. Go ahead and put that verse back up there. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. That's another word from the family of salvation words, to be reconciled. The word reconciled means to be brought together, to change back into a place. To be reconciled. It's kind of like what it means to be, just, to be justified. To be justified means to be declared right. To be reconciled means we're, we're made right. Everything's made right. It's also done through the death of his son. Done through the death of his son so that we can have life. Now think about it. We are saved through his death. That is the cross. 
we are justified, we are reconciled all through the death of Christ. The death of Christ is valuable. So here's, here's those three words that you look at. Salvation, which means to be delivered from sin, death, and damnation. Justified, which means to be declared right. And reconciled, which means to be made right. So here's the thing. Reconciliation moves us from enemies of God to become followers of God. Now, normally we use the term follower of Christ, but it's the same thing. We are followers of Jesus. That is the, the term we would use. But to be a follower of Jesus is to be a follower of God. Reconciliation takes us away from being enemy. And there's nothing we can do about it. We don't remove us from being enemies. That can't, we don't get to do that. God does that through Jesus. There are going to be people who are here today, maybe in this service, next two services, who are enemies of God. You've put yourself in that place because of your rebellion, because of your animosity. Your actions betray you. The way you live your life, your, your, your just lust for greed and power and the way you trample over people. And you say, well, it's nothing personal or it's just business or it's the way things go, but you destroy people along the way. And the, the, the lifestyle that you live as you go from one relationship to another relationship and this person and that person, and, and, and you hurt people along the way and you hurt yourself along the way, your actions betray you. Your attitudes betray you. Your attitude towards God, your bitterness towards God, your rejection of God, your animosity towards God, betray that you're an enemy. You need reconciliation. And the cross does that. So what is achieved at the cross? It's simple. Reconciliation is the achievement of the cross. Reconciliation is the achievement of the cross. I was under God's wrath. I was his enemy. And at the cross of Christ, at that moment, he took my sins. I now can become justified and reconciled through faith in Jesus. With that in mind, Verse 11 tells us what we need to do then. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus. Why? Because you've been reconciled. Notice, we are saved through Jesus. We're justified through Jesus. We're reconciled through Jesus. We celebrate. Celebration is such an important part of our faith. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, without going into the details, when and if you don't know the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, you just need to go read it. But at the end of the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son is, realizes all his rebellion against his dad, all he wants to do is just go home and be a servant. He doesn't expect to be a son. He doesn't expect to be restored. He says, I'll just go home and ask God to make me a slave. And when he gets to the father, the father sees him, runs out to him. What does the father do? Before he can ever get out, father says, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And he calls his, his servants over and he says, go get the robe for my son. Get a ring for my son. Get sandals for my son. And then go take that fat calf we got. And you slaughter that. My son was dead and was alive now. He was lost and now he is found. What did the father do? He celebrated. And our faith is a faith of celebration. We're going to come on Thursday night, and we're going to have a pre-Easter service. We're going to have two of them, one at 6, one at 7. We've got a lot of people going to be baptized between those two services. We're going to take communion, and, and we want you to come. Hope you come. You'll help us out. Get a ticket. It gives us an idea. You don't have to have a ticket to come, but it would help us out to know you get tickets out there, how many we have coming. And we know we're going to have more than and we can hold in one service. 
We're going to celebrate. Baptism, celebration, Lord's Supper, celebration too. I can remember so much growing up that baptism, and especially Lord's Supper, were times of, of just like so much solemnness and, and so much, you don't say a word, and it was so serious, and you don't say anything when people were baptized. Don't you dare clap, and don't take a picture, and don't do anything, but you can say amen. That's it. And the Lord's Supper, and I understand we're talking and reflecting on the death of Christ, and it's important, but we, we get so solemn, we forget their causes of celebration. Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate. This is what I find amazing. On Friday, Good Friday, all around the world, there will be groups. And, and what they'll be doing is they'll be reenacting the crucifixion on Good Friday. Why? I mean, there'll, there'll be people, and they'll be taking Jesus and putting him on a cross. Some will even actually nail, put nails in his hand, these guys' hands and feet who represent Jesus. Why would you do that? And people will be wailing, and people will be mourning. Why are they doing all of that? Why are we reliving the crucifixion? It's over. It's done. Jesus said, it's finished. Now, I need to understand the importance of him dying on the cross of my sin. I get that. I got that. I'm a Baptist preacher. Trust me, I understand that. But I want to celebrate. Celebrate. And that's what Easter is. Some of you need to celebrate more. You really do. In fact, let me just say this. If your faith in Christ doesn't move you to celebration, something is wrong with your faith. Have you ever met Christians that never seem to celebrate? Oh, my goodness. I have. None here, by the way. None here. <laughs> or the next two services. Or watching live on video. Okay, we got that covered. I think I covered everything. There are some Christians that seem to relish in the wrath of God. Oh, man. Wrath of God's coming on people. I can't wait. It's true. Some people just relish in the idea that people are going to hell. And some people, they just want to make you relive your sin over and over and over again. Why? Why would we do that? Why don't we celebrate? Easter is celebration. The cross that we use as our symbol is empty for a reason. Because Jesus ain't up there anymore. And you know what the message we have to people who are lost and who need Christ, and some of you who are without Christ, you are an enemy of God. You don't have to be an enemy anymore. That's the time to celebrate. You know, we spend too much time trying to change people's lives who don't. If you're not a follower of Christ, my job is not to change your, your behavior. I mean, I'd like to help you, but that's not my job. And my job isn't to get you to believe everything. You know, I mean, my job isn't to get you to believe the flood was universal or not. That's just not my problem. The job is very simple. Help you come to Jesus. So you can leave behind a life of sin and rebellion. And you can be reconciled. Saved. And you and I, together, we can celebrate. Don't we want to be a church that celebrates? Don't we want to come Thursday night and see, I think, I know we have at least 10 baptisms. We may be having more. Who knows that number will go up or down. Whatever. We want to celebrate. Don't we want to come next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday and celebrate Jesus? Think about what the cross achieved. The cross Achieve this. Because of the cross, we are saved, justified, 
and reconciled. Because of the cross. Not because of me. Because of the cross. Because of the cross. No longer. No longer are we under God's wrath. No longer are we under God's wrath. There's our next slide coming up. There you go. We're no longer facing God's wrath. No longer have to do that. It's gone. It's behind us. We are no longer God's enemies. No longer are we the enemy of God. It's not there anymore. No more. None of that. You know why? It's very simple. It's that way because of God loving us. Think about it. Because God loves us. None of that matters. We're not under his wrath. We're not an enemy. We're safe. We're justified. We're reconciled. The real question is this. Does the achievement of the cross apply to you? Have you experienced the achievement of the cross with all finality and all success? So here's the thing. Just going to ask you this one simple question. Are you an enemy of God? Before you say no, understand this. To no longer be an enemy of God means that you have been completely and fully reconciled to God because of faith in Jesus. Is that you? To no longer be his enemy, to no longer have animosity, to no longer be at odds, to no longer face the wrath that you so much deserve, but to know that you've been declared right, to know you are saved. Listen, for that to happen, you don't have to change your life today, not one bit. You don't have to all of a sudden accept a doctrinal statement and start believing all these things. No. For that to happen, you must do one thing. You must, as Paul says, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe, have faith in the power of Christ at the cross to save your life. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, if you've never done that, put aside whatever your doubts and your struggles, whatever you believe and whatever your conflicts are, putting all that aside, today you can simply trust Christ to tell him, I no longer want to be an enemy of God. I want reconciliation, and I trust you to do it. If you've never done that, you can do that right now. And then, as we have our invitation, you can come and tell one of us, I'm trusting Christ to be my Savior. I want to be reconciled. Maybe you want to pray for someone. That's fine, too. Or maybe you want to join our church. You can do that as well. I don't know what you need to do today, but walk out of here having achieved at least one thing, through the power of of the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Be sure you are reconciled with God. So, Father, we come before you to honor you and glorify you and to give you the praise that is yours. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for the salvation of those who are lost, who have never trusted Christ to be their Savior. And I pray that you would speak to them, you would help them, you would work in their life, you would bring them to reconciliation. And God, let us give our life to you and trust you. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front to greet you.